Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church, home of this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians. Particularly welcome to anyone who's here for the first time today. We're very glad to have you with us, and there'll be an opportunity to introduce yourself towards the end of the service, if you wish. For those who don't know me, my name is Jane Blackall. I've been a member of this congregation for very nearly 14 years, and I also work here as Outreach Officer part-time, which means I do a little bit of everything around the place. Our minister, Sarah Tinker, is having a well-earned Sunday off, so I'll be leading service this morning. Our opening words this morning are from Amy Mackenzie Quinn. Welcome to this common, sacred space. Common because we are all welcome. Sacred because here we transform the ordinary and attend to the profound. We carry with us our regrets, doubts, fears, stories, laughter. May they inspire our worship. Above all, may we each meet here what we most need to find on this day in this common, sacred space. Let's start by lighting our chalice, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian <coughs> Universalist community. I'm going to ask Tristan to come and light the flame. May we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of humanity. May we know once again that we are not isolated beings, but connected in mystery and miracle to the universe, to this community, and to each other. Sometimes the vision we share for compassion and community is bigger than our actual hearts. Often our hope for a just society that's both free and responsible exceeds what we actually do to create it. But may we never let our failing and floundering keep us from seeking again and again to live out in concrete deeds the dreams of our collective heart. Beginning with ourselves as we are, let us take one more step together in our unending quest for peace, justice and love. May the light of this small flame give us courage for the journey. I invite you to join me now in the spirit of prayer. May the spirit of life and love bless our gathering as we feel the divine presence among us. In the quiet of this hour, set apart from the rest of the week, may each person find what they most need. May the troubled find peace. May the confused find insight. May the downhearted find comfort. May the lonely find a sense of companionship. May the strong find moments of challenge, learning and growth. As we look back over the past week, let us silently give thanks for those joys and pleasures we've known. Moments of love and connection. Experiences of wonder and delight.
feelings of expansiveness, creativity and achievement. Let us also ask for the consolation, forgiveness and guidance we may need as we acknowledge our sorrows and regrets. Times of loss, pain and rejection. Realisation of our own mistakes and failings. Awareness of missed opportunities, those things left unsaid or undone. Expanding our circle of concern, let us bring to mind those people, places and situations that are in need of prayer right now and hold them in the light. Remember those people we know to be suffering maybe family, friends or loved ones close to our heart. Maybe those we don't know so well or that we've only heard about in the news. Maybe those we find challenging or difficult and with whom we're in need of reconciliation. Remember those places around the world and on our doorstep where there's violence, unrest and instability. And remember those who are striving to bring peace to those places. Remember those situations of injustice we are aware of, whether domestic and personal or political and systemic. And remember those who struggle on in the hope that justice will prevail. God of all love, we offer up our joys and concerns, our beauty and brokenness, and call on you for insight, healing and renewal. As we look forward now to the coming week, help us to flourish, to live well, to be our best selves using our unique gifts in the service of peace, justice and love. Amen. Our first reading is uh, quite technical. <laughs> David's going to do his best for us. It's, uh, it's called An Irenaean Theodicy. Uh, it's by a British philosopher, John Hick, who died just last year, age 90. Uh, he was a Christian, firstly with the United Reformed Church, latterly a Quaker, apparently. Um, and in this paper, he was trying to defend God against the problem of evil. That is, he's trying to make an argument to counter the fact that all the suffering in the world might make you think there is no God. Um, the following is just a selection of snippets from his paper. I particularly wanted you to hear about the views of Irenaeus, one of the second century church fathers, who gave an alternative uh, account of the creation of humankind. 
which has got some interesting features. I've tried to make this as accessible as possible, but you might have to concentrate a bit. Thanks, David. Our central theme from Irenaeus is the two-stage conception of the creation of humankind. First in the image, and then in the likeness of God. Re-expressing this in modern terms, the first stage was the gradual production of Homo sapiens through the long evolutionary process as intelligent, ethical, and religious animals. But early Homo sapiens is not the Adam and Eve of Augustinian theology, living in par perfect harmony with self, with nature, and with God. On the contrary, the life of this being must have been a constant struggle against a hostile environment, and capable of savage violence against one's fellow human beings, particularly outside one's own immediate group. And this being's concept of the divine were primitive and often bloodthirsty. In other words, people were created in the image of God as spiritually and morally immature creatures at the beginning of a long process of further growth and development, which constitutes the second stage of creation. In the second stage, of which we are a part, the intelligent, ethical, and religious animal is being brought through one's own free responses into what Irenaeus calls the likeness of God. Irenaeus' conception of a two-stage creation of the human, with perfection lying in the future rather than in the present, rather than in the past, is of fundamental importance. The reality is not a perfect creation which has gone tragically wrong, but a still continuing creative process towards a future and as yet unrealized goal. Why was humanity not initially created in possession of all the virtues instead of having to acquire them through a long, hard struggle of life as we know it? The answer, I suggest, appeals to the principle that virtues which have been formed within a person as a hard-won deposit of his own right decisions in situations of challenge and temptation are intrinsically more valuable than virtues created within him ready-made and without any effort on his own part. The development of human personality, moral, spiritual and intellectual, is a product of challenge and response. It does not occur in a static situation demanding no exertion and no choices. The fact of an objective world within which one has to learn to live on penalty of pain or death is also basic to the development of one's moral nature. For it is because the world is one in which men and women can suffer harm by violence, disease, accident, starvation, etc., that our actions affecting one another have moral significance. A morally wrong act is basically one which harms some part of the human community, whilst a morally right action is, on the contrary, 
one which prevents or neutralizes harm or which preserves or increases human well-being. It is by grappling with the real problems of a real environment in which a person is one form of life among many that one can develop in intelligence can develop in intelligence and in such qualities as courage and determination. And it is in the relationship of human beings with one another, in the context of this struggle to survive and flourish, that they can develop the higher values of mutual love and care, of self-sacrifice for others, and of commitment to a common good. Some thoughts of John Hick on Irenaeus. Our second reading is uh, from Alan de Botton. Um, in recent months he's been promoting his book, Religion for Atheists, all over the place. And off the back of that he's been talking about his manifesto for atheists, Ten Virtues for the Modern Age. He's made a rather lovely poster to promote this, and there'll be a few of these about at coffee time if you want to look. Um, he just suggests that everybody should strive to ad adopt these slightly arbitrarily chosen virtues. Um, I'll leave it at that. Here's what he had to say about it. Thanks, Amy. The Virtues Project comes as a response to a growing sense that being virtuous has become a strange and depressing notion, while wickedness and evil bask in a peculiar kind of glamour. My ultimate aim is that the project ignites a vital conversation around moral character to increase public interest in becoming more virtuous and connected as a society. In the modern world, the idea of trying to be a good person conjures up all sorts of negative associations of piety, solemnity, bloodlessness and sexual renunciation, as if goodness was something one would try to embrace only when other more difficult but more fulfilling avenues had been exhausted. Throughout history, societies have been interested in fostering virtues, in training us to be more virtuous, but we are one of the first generations to have zero public interest in this. You're allowed to work on your body, going to the gym has very high status as an activity, but announce that you're going to work on being more virtuous and people will be guaranteed to look at you as if you're insane. It sounds deeply weird, even creepy, to suggest that one might work at being better or nicer. It shouldn't, and that's what my manifesto is all about. There's no scientific answer to being virtuous, but the key thing is to have some kind of list on which to flex our ethical muscles. It reminds us that we all need to work at being good, just as we work at anything else that really matters. this service, Becoming More Like God, was nicked from a great mid-90s mystical pop record by the post-punk legend Jar Wobble. Um, there might be one or two of you here that remember it. When I originally chose the theme, I wondered if even the title might be inadvertently offensive or at least considered a bit irreverent or cocky from a mainstream point of view. It turns out I needn't have worried. Once I did my research, I was very surprised to find the idea is included in the Catholic Catechism. 
which quotes Gregory of Nyssa as saying, the goal of a virtuous life is to become like God. As we heard earlier from Irenaeus, there's this strand of thought which says that the task of humanity is to develop into the likeness of God by gradually perfecting our character through the struggles of life. A number of great philosophers and religious leaders have identified the path of virtue as a means by which we humans might come to flourish in this way. So over the next 12 minutes or so, I'm going to offer a whistle-stop tour through the highlights of the history of virtue in Western thought and flourishing. We'll consider some ways in which we might consciously cultivate virtue in our own lives today, and I'm going to invite you to reflect on those particular virtues you admire personally in, in others, and those you'd most like to cultivate in yourself. So this notion that our life's task is to become more like God has been knocking around a long time. As I understand it, it was one of Plato's big ideas and it got embellished by his followers. Our, our highest good is to become like God in as far as this is possible. And a life of virtue and righteousness is a divine thing which leads to a kind of assimilation into God. These ideas would have been in the air at the time that St Paul was around. There are echoes of it in the New Testament writings regarding Christ as the image of God and the task of believers to become more like Christ by faithfully imitating his ways. And these early church fathers like Irenaeus, Gregory of Nyssa and Clement of Alexandria all took up the idea and theosis or deification or divinization still seems to be quite a prominent doctrine in the Eastern Orthodox Church though I'm sure there's a lot more to the theology of that than I'm going to be able to indicate today. Taking a step sideways from all that Aristotle is uh, generally regarded as the godfather of virtue ethics. He wrote of the telos of life, life's ultimate end, the purpose or the point of it all. And for him, the telos was eudaimonia. And I've seen that term translated in various ways, living in a way that is well favoured by the gods. Uh, more often it's translated as flourishing, or it can be understood as a deep and holistic kind of happiness, living a good and meaningful life. Uh, for, for Aristotle, that's the, that's the point of it all. I'd suggest we could embellish that idea a little bit further. Um, we might include such notions such as self-realisation, fulfilling our potential, contributing to the common good. Eudaimonia is not about transient pleasures, but it's about a life that's good when considered as a whole. It might be helpful to imagine yourself, hopefully a very long way in the future, in a very ripe old age, looking back over your whole life. What would you like your life to have been about? looking back over it all at the end. Uh, Thomas Aquinas picked up the idea of virtue in medieval times. He defined virtue as a habit or disposition by which we live righteously, of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us without us. Aquinas is associated with the four cardinal virtues who are pictured on the front of your order of service. Uh, justice, fortitude, temperance and prudence. I think this is Strasbourg Cathedral. If you look very closely, I didn't notice this immediately, that they're thoroughly and comprehensively squashing the vices under their feet, those poor little contorted vices. Um, for Aquinas, these four cardinal virtues are the principal moral virtues which will help us rise to the challenge of living a good and meaningful life. Justice is the disposition that gives us concern for others and for the common good, it gets us past our ego and gets us to give others their due. Fortitude, sometimes known as courage, is the disposition that enables us to endure suffering, persist in hard work and face our fears for the sake of what's ultimately worthwhile. Temperance is the disposition of moderation and self-control. 
in the modern context, I like to think of that in relation to what we consume, what we give our time and attention to. And prudence is the quality that brings them all together, sometimes known as practical wisdom. This is knowing how to make good decisions about our actions and about the overall direction that our life is heading. Aquinas also highlighted the very familiar theological virtues, faith, hope and love. Now at this point I feel the need to echo what we heard from Alan de Botton earlier and what a few of us were talking about in the foyer before the service, about the rather uninspiring reputation the virtues got these days. Words such as temperance and prudence probably don't excite you. If you were to hear someone described as virtuous, your first assumption might well be that they're going to be joyless, sniffy, buttoned up and boring, someone who doesn't know how to have fun. You probably won't be overly surprised to hear that I haven't got a lot of time for that view. For me, virtue is related to finding a deeper happiness in life instead of being sidetracked by by its more superficial pleasures. Or being unduly sidetracked by its superficial pleasures. The language of virtue has been somewhat neglected over the centuries, but I'd like to see us reclaim it and revive it now as a rich and surprisingly practical approach to ethical living in the real world. A key feature that distinguishes virtue ethics from some of the other ethical theories that have dominated over the last few centuries is that it focuses on the person rather than the action. The central question of virtue ethics is not, what should I do, making moral calculations in a particular situation or a dilemma, but what kind of person should I be? And that's a lifetime project of character development. By becoming a virtuous person, developing good habits, good dispositions, the idea is that in any given situation, the right action will almost come to you as second nature. Which is not to suggest it comes easily. Um, Virtue ethics acknowledges the complexity of the moral life. Sometimes different virtues will pull you in different directions. And part of our task, using practical wisdom or prudence, is to integrate those different virtues as we live them out in the real world. So, to move a bit from theory to practice, how do we go about becoming more virtuous? Some virtues may come naturally to each of us, and others might be more of a stretch. One way to think about cultivating virtue is to compare it with acquiring a practical skill or an art, like learning to play the piano, for example. In general, virtue is something we learn by doing. It takes a bit of conscious awareness, remembering the words of the Buddha from the meditation earlier, as we think, so we become. And it also takes a great deal of practice and persistence. To start with, it might feel as if we're just going through the motions, but by acting as if we are virtuous, we can get ourselves into a virtuous circle and reinforce the good intentions that we have. You may have heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. But virtue is not just a behavioural habit. It's an enduring disposition of character. And in the ideal case, it needs to take root in you so that you end up feeling, thinking, desiring virtuously and being able to reliably discern what is good and virtuous. Not just doing the right thing, but really feeling it in your whole being. If we want to become more virtuous ourselves, one way to go about it is to emulate a virtuous person. Uh, Look to the lives of great religious teachers, saints or moral heroes, and that can inspire us to live well ourselves. Many people look to Jesus as the ultimate moral example and attempt to follow in his ways. From reading the gospel stories, we might choose to focus on the virtues of compassion, forgiveness, humility. But moral heroes need not be well-known historic figures. We can learn by emulating those good people we've been lucky enough to encounter personally in our own lifetime. Maybe it's a bit less intimidating to aspire to be like those virtuous souls whose life circumstances are a bit closer to our own. 
whose very ordinariness and imperfections are well known to us, as well as their goodness. Now you might want to find this little orange sheet in your order of service. Aquinas gave us those four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues, but as we think about these inspirational characters we have known, they might bring to mind many more traits that we consider to be virtuous. Now this sheet of a hundred virtues can't even that can't hope to be comprehensive, uh, but it will do to be getting on with. This is taken from a website of a great organisation called The Virtues Project. Nothing to do with Alan de Botton's Virtues Project. This one's been going a lot longer. 20 years uh, this project's been running in over 90 countries, and it's been commended by the Secretariat of the United Nations as a model global programme for families of all cultures. It draws on sacred traditions from around the world and offers multi-faith resources for virtues education, with the stated aim of giving children a greater sense of meaning and purpose in the hope of reducing violence globally. Cultivating virtue is not just an inward-looking exercise in self-improvement. It's about making a better world for everyone, idealistic as that sounds. So you might like to cast an eye over that list for a few moments. And I'm going to give you a few questions to consider. There are spaces on the back for you to note down your responses if you like. That's why you've got a pencil on the way in. So think about these questions. Think of someone you find inspiring or heroic. Which virtues do you most admire in them? Think of somebody you're close to. Which virtues do you most value in relationship? Think about the world we live in today. Which virtues do we most need to cultivate in our society? Think about your own life as it's unfolded so far. Which virtues are most characteristic of you? And finally, think about the person you aspire to become. Which virtues would you like to focus on cultivating in yourself? You might need some time to ponder those over coffee, perhaps on the bus home. But just to, to finish off, you might 
like to choose just one virtue that you're particularly drawn to and pay special attention to that quality in your own life in the days and weeks that come ahead. Being fully virtuous does seem to be an ideal that we can aspire towards but never quite achieve. However, by setting our aspirations so high, we may find that even when we fall short, we will have stretched ourselves towards the good, towards God. For me, the cultivation of virtue is a religious task, best pursued in a supportive community such as this. So let's keep nudging each other along the path of virtue, encouraging each other to be the best we can be in the circumstances in which we find find ourselves. May we all flourish together and live good and meaningful lives for the greater good of all. Amen. May the light around us guide our footsteps and hold us fast to the best and the most righteous ways that we seek. May the darkness around us nurture our dreams and give us rest so that we may give ourselves to the work of the world. Reminded that we are part and participants of the universe, let us go forth from the quiet of this hour, encouraged to strive towards faithfulness to the best in ourselves, in others, and in all of creation. Amen.